South Sudan in focus on the voice of America. I'm John Tanza in Washington working on this program very much. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan this Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. The UN mission in South Sudan says cases of sexual related violence has increased in some parts of the country. The special representative of the Secretary General, Nicholas Hasem, called the exponential surge in sexual and gender based violence completely unacceptable and that it impacts most severely on women and girls. And South Sudanese participating in the Washington Mandela Fellowship say they have gained necessary skills for development in their country. We have to talk to the community, I mean community members or communities in the country to ensure that they should come with a limit. You know, it has to come from them. And then they have to involve the government so so that the government can come up with rules, you know, that that can regulate... uh, Marriage processes in the country. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. The United Nations mission in South Sudan says cases of conflict-related violence are on the rise in South Sudan despite an overall decrease in the number of civilians affected by violence across the country. In its latest report covering the second quarter of this year, the mission says the number of cases of sexual-related violence have jumped up in some parts of the country. Wake Simon Wudu reports for VOA from Juba. The report recorded more than 900 civilian casualties, which UNEMI says represents a 50% decrease compared to the same period in 2021. UNEMI spokesperson says there is a 218% increase in conflict-related sexual violence cases involving rape and gang rape in some parts of South Sudan. Spokesperson Linda Tom says the mission is very concerned about cases of violence which have efforts to bring peace in South Sudan. The special representative of the Secretary General, Nicholas Hasem, called the exponential surge in sexual and gender-based violence completely unacceptable and that it impacts most severely on women and girls. He added that this violence divides communities and hampers reconciliation. Tom says in the first quarter of 2022, intercommunal conflict has been the primary source of civilian harm, accounting for 60% of civilian casualties. She says government forces and the Sudan People's Liberation Movement or Army in Opposition or SPLIO are responsible for 38% of casualties of violence in parts of the country. The UN spokesperson says violence in the southern part of Unity State resulted in about a third of civilian casualties during the reporting period. UNEMI says it's supporting the authorities to ensure accountability and access to justice for survivors and victims through a range of special and mobile courts and a court martial process. The mission, Tom says, is calling on the government to ensure justice is provided to all victims to stop the rights abuses. 
commission urges the government of South Sudan to swiftly investigate human rights violations and abuses and to hold perpetrators to account. With just a few months remaining in the transition, we call for the full implementation of the revitalized peace agreement to enable the security sector to carry out the government's primary responsibility to protect civilians. The Unimis quarterly report on the human rights situation in South Sudan presents an overview of trends in violence affecting civilians. In its first quarterly report of this year documented between the period of January and March, Unimis said its Human Rights Division recorded 173 incidents of violence affecting hundreds of civilians, which included 63 sexual violence cases. The reporter says while there is 32% decrease in violent incidents compared to the same reporting period in 2021, the number of victims remains relatively stable. SPLIO spokesperson Colonel Lampaul Gabriel denies his group committed abuses in southern part of Unity State. It was completely purely uh, uh, intercommunal violence that happened in uh, one community or one county was attacked by uh, members of youth from two other counties. That is, Lair uh, was attacked by members coming from uh, uh, Mayendi and Koch. Uh, so that doesn't involve the HPLIO. And, and this notion of always uh, saying that the youth are allied to the HPLIO is completely not, not, not justifiable. When, when, you know, we, we, we live in a community where the youth have to defend their territory. They have to defend their land. And uh, when they defend their land, they are not allied to the SPLA. Major General Lul Rai Kwong, the spokesperson of the South Sudan People's Defense Forces, says the leadership of the South Sudan Army is studying the report. Uh, in the report, the command of business media will go through and they will give their, uh, their comments. South Sudan is a party to the African Charter on Human and People's Rights and has ratified three core international human rights treaties. The African Charter on Human and People's Rights commits South Sudan to respect, protect, and promote the human rights of all persons within its territory and or under its jurisdiction. For VON News, I'm working Simon Wudu in Juba. Some fellows with the Young African Leaders Initiative, or YALI, taking part in the Mandela Washington Fellowship say they will return to their country to implement the knowledge and skills they gained in the United States. Some of the 2022 Mandela Washington Fellows say the issues they want to tackle in their country include the high rate of school dropouts, cattle theft, intercommunal killings, and forced marriages. For VOA News, David Monodanga reports from Washington. The high rate of intercommunal killings, cattle theft, forced marriages, and school dropouts are just some of the issues some of the 2022 Mandela Washington fellows said they want to tackle in their communities. Some, like James Mawen, a public information assistant with the United Nations Mission in South Sudan, or ANMIS at the Rumbek Field Office, plan to strengthen his advocacy through his organization, Citizens Eye for Transparency and Accountability, or CETA. 
a non-profit he created to advocate for transparency, freedom of the press, and resolution of intercommunal conflicts, among other issues. Mawen says he also wants to fight against the age-old tradition of expensive dowry charged for a bride in his community. We have to talk to the community, I mean community members or communities in the country to ensure that they should come with a limit, you know, it has to come from them. And then they have to involve the government so, the go- so that the government can come up with rules, you know, that could, that can regulate uh, marriage uh, processes in the country. Because I see that it is encouraging early and post-marriages and also it is encouraging cattle raiding, cattle wrestling, cattle theft. Mawen, who went to Indiana University, says even if bride price is a cultural norm, it's high time that communities evaluate the impact of high bride price on young people, especially on girls who are forced into marriages to much older men. He notes that the practice also causes cattle raids since young men cannot afford to pay a dowry. The issue of insecurity, intercommunal conflicts, intersectional conflicts are so many. Most of them are related to cattle raiding, rebellion killings, cattle thefts. Uh, we have to be taken care and also movement from one place to another. Too much hatred. Community members do not trust each other. Tribes do not trust each other. So it's very important to build reconciliation among people so that we come back as South Sudanese. For us to grow, we know we did not fight for the country. For us to kill ourselves, we fought for the country to be to live peacefully and also to devolve, you know, for the next generation to come. According to a 2021 UNICEF report on South Sudan, 2.8 million children were out of school, a significant increase from the 2.2 million reported in 2016. South Sudan Yali fellow, Lubang Alex Charles, says he learned many lessons while attending the University of Colorado of Denver, which will help him achieve his goal, keeping girls in school back home. The largest group uh, of these out-of-school uh, children are girls, and they made some poverty, child marriage, cultural and religious views. Uh, uh, all uh, these uh, factors are hindering girls' education. It's putting their, their future at risk and also the future of the country. Josephine Amona, who underwent six weeks of training in leadership in civic engagement at the University of Delaware, and now an intern with Plan International USA in Washington, founded Seedbeat Foundation, a South Sudanese NGO focused on educating girls and women about health issues. Amuna says she hopes to open a vocational training center for women to make reusable sanitary towels. When I was applying for this uh, fellowship, I wanted to come and learn how to make the reusable sanitary towels and then go back home, teach them how to make it themselves. I'm going to teach women. I'm going to, I think I'm going to open like a vacational training center that is going to teach women on how to make the reusable sanitary towels. Because, you know, uh, Side Bit Foundation team have been going around uh, supplying the disposal sanitary towels. Amuna also wants to create jobs for women so they can become independent. Sometimes in this life, we end up depending on men because we feel like, you know, men can, can, can be like a security to us or rather can be a provider to all of us. But, you know, in real sense, we are all human beings. We work and we get tired sometimes working. So it's good to know yourself. And by the time you get to know yourself, you know exactly what you're passionate of. You will know what you love to do. And uh, once you know what you love to do, you become independent. Once you become independent, you become powerful.
The Young African Leaders Initiative began in 2010 by President Barack Obama and is administered by the U.S. Department of State. The program brings 10 young leaders from South Sudan every year to learn in institutions of higher education in the United States and network with American communities to acquire transferable skills they can apply in their communities and organizations when they return home. For VOA News, I am David Monodanga in Washington. From Washington, we move to the Horn of Africa, where Ethiopia's government and the rebels of the Tigray People's Liberation Front are preparing for peace talks to end the conflict that broke out in November 2022. In the town of Abala, badly damaged by the conflict, militiamen and locals say they are ready for peace talks, but analysts say it won't come easy. Henry Wilkins reports from Addis Ababa. Abala is largely a ghost town. The streets are mostly empty, except for the burned-out cars and other evidence of war. The scene of intense fighting in late December, residents say Tigrayan forces fired at civilians from a ridge overlooking the town. Most residents fled, but since the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front left in April, a handful have returned. Faras Liali, a local militia leader who fought the TPLF, says the devastation caused by the war is far-reaching. He says people are not afraid of war now, but of famine. There is nothing to eat, and there are no markets or shops. There is great fear at the present time of starvation, and many families return to the town in confusion, not knowing what to do because of the lack of basic services in the city, he says. The residents say they are afraid of unexploded bombs too. Two boys showed VOA a pair of half-metre-high shells they found left in their home. Many people VOA spoke to in Abala and other surrounding towns said they did not care about the politics between the Ethiopian government and Tigray. They just want to return to normal life. Both sides have indicated they're ready to negotiate an end to Ethiopia's 21-month internal war. In June, the Ethiopian government said it had set up a committee for negotiations. The TPLF has said it is doing the same. Fasiha Askadom Tasama, a TPLF spokesperson, told VOA, however, he is no longer optimistic that talks will take place soon. I cannot say that today because at that time we were told by interlocutors, countries like the United States, the African Union, all of them, that basic services will start any minute, any minute now. We were counting not days but hours that there will be some move. Now, it looks like the Addis Ababa government have decided against it. The government has cut communications, banking services, fuel supplies and prevented humanitarian aid from reaching Tigray. Analysts agree peace talks are unlikely to go ahead if those basic services are not restored. But even if that happens, there are still obstacles to overcome, say analysts. One is the size of Tigray's army and its ability to wage war against the government. William Davison is an analyst with International Crisis Group, a Belgian-based research group. It's not clear that Tigray's leadership or its people um, would be willing to accept the downsizing, let alone the abolition of that force. Um, but equally, it's not at all clear that the federal government would accept um, Tigray to become a fully functioning part of the, the federation and its political system whilst it was still in possession of such a large and capable um, fighting force. 
the TPLF has indicated it could try to separate from Ethiopia and form an independent state. Kiran Tadesi, a local analyst, does not think this is a good idea. I think it's not a, a, a realistic option. Uh, we can uh, simply take even Eritrea and practice. Uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea left Ethiopia uh, some three uh, decades ago, and what it has been through is not as such, you know, praiseworthy. Analysts also say which side takes control of the disputed region of West Tigray will play a major role in negotiations. The Ethiopian government did not respond to a request for interview. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Abala, Ethiopia. Listening to South Sudan in focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, the UN Refugee Agency says it is cutting aid to people displaced by conflict in DRC. Find out why after the break. What do you think? People speak out on important questions. Question today. How does your family take care of an elderly relative? Once in a while, we sit down with him, speak with him, ask him how he's doing so he doesn't feel lonely. Then we also tell him about what is going on in the world so that he doesn't feel left out. We make sure we provide the basic needs like food, water, make her happy, not to feel rejected. Because when they are growing and you start to abandon them, they see that they are not needed. And showing them love even brings them healing. Helping them with the domestic cures, for example, preparing meals for them. Uh, helping them with the clothes, cleaning up the house. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. You're listening to South Sudan in focus on the voice of America. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, says it will be forced to cut aid programs for millions of internally displaced persons and refugees in the Democratic Republic of Congo because of lack of funds. For VOA News, Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. UNHCR says it has received only 19% of the $225 million required to run its humanitarian operation this year. That, it says, is not enough to meet the bare minimum, let alone respond to the growing protection and humanitarian needs of millions of people whose lives have been shattered by conflict and violence. The DRC is home to the biggest displacement crisis in Africa, with more than 5.6 million internally displaced people and over half a million refugees and asylum seekers. Director of the UNHCR's Division for External Relations, Dominique Hyde, has returned from a trip last week to Strife Riven Ituri province in eastern DRC. She is shocked at the extent of loss and suffering experienced by survivors of ongoing fight by the many armed groups in the province. She says she left feeling very angry at the impact the underfunding is having on the lives of the displaced people she met. There wasn't a single internally displaced person that I met who hadn't suffered the loss of a family member, I'm meaning their children, their husband, their wives, or in the case of women who have not been the victims of sexual violence. 
We as UNHR are providing mental health support and psychosocial support to these women, but honestly, we are only able to do the bare minimum. She says the impact of underfunding is dire. She says the ability to respond to even the most basic needs and to provide safety and dignity to the families is not possible. Hyde says 82% of the country's internally displaced people will not receive adequate shelter. This means that displaced women, children, men, boys will be forced to sleep in churches, in schools, in stadiums, out in the open, and or they're going to decide to go back to their homes and again being targets of these attacks. I met multiple people who had been displaced multiple times during their lives in the past uh, years or so. UNHCR warns it will be forced to cut cash and livelihood kits for agriculture, fisheries, and livestock if it does not receive additional support that it says will create food shortages for many people. Without more money, it says few refugee children will receive a primary education which will have a lifelong detrimental effect. Agency officials say the war in Ukraine has taken the oxygen out of humanitarian appeals for Africa. They note international solidarity toward people fleeing war in Ukraine has been overwhelming. They add a similar response and more financial support also should be extended to all crises around the world. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Press Freedom Group, the committee to protect journalists, say Ethiopia now ranks with Eritrea as the biggest jailers of journalists in sub-Saharan Africa. For VOA News, Fred Heter reports. At least 63 journalists and media workers have been arrested in Ethiopia since the Tigray conflict started in November 2020, according to a new report from the Committee to Protect Journalists. The advocacy group, which monitors media freedoms globally, says Ethiopia ranks as sub-Saharan Africa's worst jailer of journalists, alongside Eritrea. Ethiopia long had a reputation for media censorship under the previous government led by the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, which is now fighting the federal government. After he came to power in 2018, current Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed promised to ease restrictions and to usher in a new era of media freedom. But rights groups have documented a deteriorating media environment since the Tigray War started that has seen several journalists detained, threatened and assaulted. Two local journalists have been killed in disputed circumstances since November 2020, and two foreign correspondents working for the New York Times and The Economist have been expelled from the country. Ethiopia has also seen several communications shutdowns, including in Tigray, which has been without phone and internet services since the TPF retook most of the region in June 2021. Mutoki Mumo, CJP's representative for Sub-Saharan Africa, says the arrested journalists were producing work that was dissenting from the dominant state narrative of the war. Some journalists have also been targeted due to perceptions that their work might favour certain political groups. But through all of this, what we can say is that these arrests indicate a conflation of journalistic work, of critical commentary with criminal activity. And that is very dangerous. At least eight of the journalists and media workers whose arrests were documented by the Committee to Protect Journalists remain behind bars. The group says most of the arrests follow a similar pattern, with journalists held in detention for several weeks without having formal charges brought, while the authorities request more time to investigate. Ethiopia's government has previously denied targeting journalists, 
saying that police have followed due process and only detained those who have broken the country's media laws. Fred Harter for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. South African police have launched what they are calling a full-scale crackdown on illegal mining. It is taking place particularly in Gauteng province, where hundreds of abandoned mines dated back to the 1800s gold rush near Johannesburg. The police action comes after the gang rape of nine women who were filming a music video near an old mine in the town of Krugersdrop last week. The police and local residents have blamed the attack on illegal miners called Zamazamas. For VOA News, Darren Taylor reports from Johannesburg. Communities living near old mines have for years complained of being terrorized by Zamazama gangs. They say gang members, often armed with AK-47 rifles and machetes, are usually dressed in balaclavas and blankets. This is traditional attire of the Basutu people of Lesotho, the tiny mountain kingdom contained within the borders of South Africa. Police acknowledge they haven't done enough to combat illegal mining and the Zamazamas have perpetrated crimes with relative impunity. This changed yesterday when hundreds of officers descended on abandoned mines around Gauteng. They arrested almost 50 alleged illegal miners, seizing a variety of weapons and gold. At one scene, Gauteng Police Commissioner Elias Mawela told reporters two Zama Zama shooters opened fire on officers. The one with the pink was carrying a pistol and the one with the black jacket was carrying the rifle. Then we mobilized the chopper. When our ground forces, they were searching for them, they picked them up where they were hiding. And but unfortunately, we... He pointed to an area almost completely enclosed by huge mine dumps. In there, we have found a fresh processing center of this illegal mining. So when the operators are operating that side, they do have the security guys. These people with the heavy caliber firearm protecting the industry so that they can also spot the police when they are coming and so forth. So clearly these ones, they were protecting those ones who were operating that side. General Mawela said most of those arrested are undocumented migrants from Lesotho and Mozambique. You may find that some of them, you know, through the DNA, through their fingerprints, they may be linked to other crimes which were committed elsewhere in the country or in Gauté. He said some of the alleged illegal minors in custody are boys aged between 12 and 16. Their arrests doesn't surprise Hawks police unit investigator Dave Davis. He says the gangs force boys traffic to South Africa from neighboring countries to work in narrow tunnels in which they're sometimes buried alive. Davis explained the Zama Zama's modus operandi during a raid at a small lake west of Johannesburg. They steal this gold-bearing material from different mines. They bring it here because of the water at the back. They use this to wash down the gold-bearing material on James tables. And then they eventually make amalgam with mercury, burn that and get gold nuggets, which makes its way into the illicit market. Mawela promised ongoing intensive actions against illegal mining.
Focus, it will be to try to retrieve the firearms which are currently in the wrong hands. Because when you see the level of violent crime, it is alarming and it is disturbing. And it is all over how they, no doubt about it, but we'll deal with them systematically and intelligence that will guide us that this day we go elsewhere, tomorrow we go elsewhere. Even tomorrow we'll have another big one. The police crackdown on the Zamazamas has received mixed reaction from the public. Some have commended it. Others have questioned why it's taken a vicious gang rape to spur law enforcement into acting against gangs that have been inspiring fear for almost two decades. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. And that's all we prepared for you this Wednesday. We now leave you with Tutu and some traditional Zande song from Yambio in Western Equatorial State. traditional Zande song from Yambio in Western Equatorial State. I'm your host, John Tanza in Washington. Thanks for allowing us into your home, vehicle, and on your phone. Remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America.